Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of ClabesOnline.com. Our podcast today will feature our good friend, formerly of the Chicago Bulls, once assistant general manager, he is Clarence Gaines Jr. Now, if you know anything about CGJ, you will know that he was one of the assistant general managers for the Bulls during their incredible run that's been featured on The Last Dance on ESPN. Well, we've had a chance to talk to him about the first two episodes and what he thought of him and his thoughts and where he sat So we'll do it for episodes three and four and get Clarence's thoughts on a number of things that unfolded, namely Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson. There are a number of things we'll talk to him about. And we're going to do all of that when we return after we have a chance to tell you about some of our great sponsors, certainly Ameren, Illinois, Fast Eddie's Bonaire, and of course, the Munganast Automotive Group. So stand by, folks. We've got more coming your way. This is ClavesOnline.com. Our podcast is about to get underway after this. Munganass St. Louis Acura would like to extend a huge thank you to our healthcare workers and first responders by offering them several service specials, including a free interior detail cleaning. You can call them today to make your appointment and let them help you while you are helping our community. Find them online at stlouisacura.com or give them a call 314-822-2872 for Munganass St. Louis Acura. When you think about electricity and natural gas, how many natural gas customers do you have in the state? 816,000 gas customers in the state of Illinois that we serve. That's so, a big number. It is. It's a it's a big number and big responsibility. You know, we don't take that lightly and uh, you know, it's uh it's a privilege to serve the customers in the state of Illinois and our and me and my coworkers, you know, we take that very seriously. So if you think about the state of Illinois, anything but pretty much Chicago and the Chicago suburbs is served by Ameren, Illinois. And so our service territory is actually uh, 44,000 square miles. It's bigger than the state of Indiana. That's a lot of coverage. And so when you think about coverage and we think about sources of energy, most people think of Ameren, Illinois for electricity, but natural gas is a major player in what you do. Yes, it is, uh, Mike. You know, natural gas, we, you know, like you said, Ameren, a lot of people think electricity. But Ameren, Illinois is made up of three companies that all had natural gas before, and those combined companies are a top 25 gas utility in the nation. We have over 18,000 miles of pipeline throughout the state, 12 uh, storage fields, and uh, 1,250 miles of transmission lines that serve our customers. That's a lot of property and a lot of coverage. So give me some of the uses for natural gas and some of the things it's being used for other than maybe being on a gas grill. Yeah, so I, you know, the easiest way for me to describe that is, uh, you know, I built a house about 10, 12 years ago. So I have a gas furnace, I have a, it heats my home obviously, I have a gas water heater, I have a natural gas dryer, I have a gas stove for cooking my food and oven. I also have a gas uh, fireplace, which also serves as a little furnace for my living room. And I have a gas grill, as you mentioned, for cooking my food. So I got six appliances in my house that run on natural gas. So you're covered with gas, or in this case, cooking with gas. Yeah, I'm cooking with with gas, right. Well, Clarence Gaines, a lot to talk about with regard to episodes three and four of The Last Dance. Uh, So first of all, let me get your overall opinion of what you had a chance to take in. And I know you did pay close attention. Wow, Michael, uh, you're right. There is so much to discuss. But before doing that, you asked me about a Jerry Krause moment. I gave you one last time on the last podcast. I'm not going to go into that. If anybody wants to listen to it, they can go back to the first podcast. There you go. Right? See, you're learning this. You uh, learn this podcast business fairly well. I like this, man. <laughs> uh, but this Jerry Krause moment has to deal with me, 
basically it ties into a lot of things and shows how life works. And uh, it kind of gives you the essence of who Jerry was in the definition of, well, not definition, but how he was defined sometimes by people as nicknamed the flute. You know, he always wanted to go undercover. And Jerry was very close with my father. Again, that started uh, back in the days when my dad had Earl Monroe. And Jerry was a kicker, a scout for his first professional basketball team, which is the Baltimore Bullets. Well, in 1986, Earl Monroe was getting his jersey retired. And March 1st, 86, to be exact, I actually looked it up. And Jerry had called my father to get tickets uh, to the CIAA tournament. Most NBA scouts or general managers are going to go to the league office. But no, Jerry's going to utilize my dad to give him some tickets so nobody knows he's there and he can sit in the stands at a Division II tournament. I don't even remember who Jerry was looking at at the time. But my dad's team at law, and Earl Monroe was having his jersey retired, so he went up to that jersey retirement ceremony. And he gave me Jerry's ticket to get to him. And that's really how I got to know Jerry. And uh, Jerry likes to talk to people. And uh, so we connected in that moment, gave him the ticket. He went to his seat. I went to mine. But he followed up with me um, and would invite me to things. For example, the Summer League was happening in L.A. at that time. I went to the L.A. Summer League. And uh, that was my introduction to uh, professional basketball and meeting Jerry Krause. And then it eventually led to me getting an opportunity to work for the Chicago Bulls. And I thought people would uh, enjoy that story before we go into depth into uh, details with the uh, two episodes that we saw just recently with the last dance. I want to go back to something with regard to Jerry and being somewhat of reclusive and and very covert in some of his actions. And and I know that Jerry Krause is not the only general manager uh, or evaluator of talent that had his ways of doing things in a covert manner. And, And it's amazing the connections and the contacts they would make, whether it was an equipment guy or a ball boy or someone who might be off the normal path that they could go out and reach out to and get key information about a player or about an organization. And and he's not by himself, is he? Because I know you know other people in the business, and maybe it's basketball, but other sports that also uh, operate in that manner in making sure that they stay undercover, under radar, where they don't want to be noticed at that particular time because they are looking at somebody they don't want anybody else to know that they're looking at. No doubt, Michael, and especially in, in basketball. Uh, when you go to, see, let's say, a Carolina-Duke game, it really doesn't matter because everybody's going to be there. Everybody knows who the prospects are. But when you walk into a uh, smaller um, especially back in the day. I mean, things are so well publicized now uh, with social media, the internet, YouTube, all the things that you see out there. So any, even prospects, and there are very few prospects now at the small college level, but you will obviously see them at the mid-major uh, level. Uh, but yeah, the guy's going to uh, try to keep what they're doing, who their interests are, really secret. And you saw that uh, in terms of Donovan Mitchell and the Utah Jazz. They brought in him for a couple of workouts. And uh, the general manager at the time knew what he saw and liked in him. Is it? I don't want you guys to read a word of this. So, <laughs> you're on point with that. 
All right, let's talk about episode three, first of all. Uh, Dennis Robin, an interesting person that Jerry kind of alluded to in the uh, first two episodes and how Jim Stack thought he might be a good idea. Give me your impression of what Dennis Robin meant. And I heard a great story, and I'm sure you may know Bob Nelson, a great friend of Tex, Tex Winter. Uh, people wanted to gauge the pulse of the Bulls uh, and different people within the organization about Dennis Robin. We all knew what a good player he was, but some people thought maybe there was baggage that came with it that maybe some organizations and some teams wouldn't be able to stand. So give me your thoughts on the whole Dennis Rodman experience. And what an experience it was. Um, you know, I was listening to um, an Isaiah Thomas clip today on First Take, and um, Isaiah was saying, you know, the episode and people who have seen it, Dennis, after playing 35, 40 games, I think it was actually about 35 games, Scotty comes back in January. And he says, it's time for me a break. I got to go out to Las Vegas. And Phil said, and this is Phil's genius, and for people who really want to understand the difference between college basketball and professional basketball and how you work with and deal with athletes, uh, you know, these are men, these are no longer boys. But still, what Dennis was asking to go away from the team so that he could get his funk on uh, was was still exceptional. But Phil let him do that. But Isaiah said he had another way of looking at it. He said, you know, that was, uh, is that Dennis uh, crying for out for help? And my reply to Isaiah is that, yeah, I can see where you're coming from that. But the Dennis Rodman who came into the NBA with the Detroit Pistons is a naive, innocent, 25-year-old, much older player. And for those who don't know his background, Dennis was a late bloomer, really didn't play high school basketball, had sisters who were better than him in basketball. Matter of fact, one of his sisters is in the Hall of Fame at Louisiana Tech, which was a uh, power back in the day in women's basketball. She won two national championships with them. So, you know, Dennis grew up in a female household. Mother kicked him out. That was told in the story. Uh, but he found his way to an NAIA school. Grew, similar to um, the story with Scottie Pippen, as well as people who don't know the Dennis Johnson story, who's also another Hall of Fame athlete, guys who were late bloomers and picked up. And he was really a naive, innocent young man when he came to the um, Detroit Pistons. Grew up in that organization um, under... You have to say he grew up under a lot of tough-minded, intelligent basketball players, namely Isaiah Thomas, who I think is one of the greatest guards that's ever played the game, and also Chuck Daly, who was very special with him. That came out in the documentary. But Dennis, by the time he had finished his tenure um, in Detroit, the NBA had corrupted him. He'd gone out with Madonna. Madonna basically said, Dennis, you got to find yourself. you got to be who you want to be. None of the, anybody dictate who you're going to be. And Dennis was hard to handle. You know, they go over the episode where he's in the parking lot, and uh, luckily he didn't, um, and Albert Hill didn't take that shotgun and do anything with it, and he said he fell asleep. But at that point, Detroit Pistons said they had to get rid of him. So who did they trade him to? They trade him to the San Antonio Spurs. And by the way, Chuck Daly had retired, so he had lost that support structure, and other people were distancing themselves. 
well, let me the Detroit a- organization. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this about that whole relationship, because there are some that think that, as you mentioned, Dennis was naive at the point when he was with the Pistons, and some people took advantage of that, namely teammates. They took advantage of Dennis and some personal things within his own life that, you know, left a bad taste in his mouth after he finally grew up. And the only person who he really trusted at that point was Chuck Daly. And as you just touched upon, once Chuck Daly retired, he had no support system whatsoever. He was just treated like a control number. And people who had taken advantage of him had just continued to move on and do other things. And and Dennis didn't have any any support behind him. Well, I don't know about the... Uh, interaction with his teammates so that's kind of enlightening to me uh mike if and you want to share that it'd be great uh anything you know specifically with certain um interactions and relationships he had with his players but i look at it the fact from the standpoint that yeah chuck left and he's just finding out who he can be and he's living a life and the nba as you all know uh, once guys get money and women come around and you don't have that self-control and self-discipline, you can say this about all professional sports. Uh, it can be very tough to deal with. And uh, there are a lot of guys have been led astray and, and have gone off the deep end. But Detroit trades him to who? San Antonio Spurs. That was two years of a discombobulated, unbelievable experience. Guess who was coaching? Um, as far as at the time, it wasn't Greg Popovich. It was John Lucas, who you would think would be able to work with and deal with Dennis. Now, people like to say the word handle, uh, uh, like Phil Jackson. People say was, uh, was the type of coach who could handle Dennis Rodman. But long ago, I read something from Wilt Chamberlain, and it, it kind of stuck with me. And also stuck with a, a legendary coach in there, L.A. Air at the time. Uh, John Wooden and Wilt said, you don't handle players, you handle horses. And that caused John Wooden actually to change in his, one of his books, that terminology. He made sure the next edition that came out talked about working with players. And But John Lucas and the people on the podcast, they might not know Luke's background, but John Lucas was a little bit of a troubled soul when he was in the NBA, but he worked his way out of that. He's done great things since then. But he couldn't get Dennis to go on the straight and narrow. Neither could Bob Hill. So by the end of his experience with San Antonio, they were ready to let him go. Let's look what happened that last year with San Antonio. Dennis only played 49 games. He got suspended. He had to take a leave of absence. When he came back, he missed 19 games um, but excuse me but when he came back after he joined the team he had a shoulder separation guess how he got that shoulder separation in a motorcycle accident so they were ready to get Dennis the hell out of there and they gave up a lot to get Dennis they traded for Sean Elliott to get Dennis Rodman that was basic trade there are other things uh, revolving around that trade but the key was the Dennis Rodman and Sean Elliott move. a lot of people probably don't even know that now that Sean Elliott went to Detroit because he's so identified with San Antonio. He only played that one year and San Antonio was able to get him back. But that sets up how the Bulls are able to get uh, a key piece, more than a key piece. Dennis was a change agent and there are very few 
uh, players in the NBA who are, who are change agents and have a, the impact on the game that Dennis Rodman had. And you heard uh, uh, Michael basically made a statement and he was really uh, upset uh, when Dennis um, got thrown out of the game and Scotty wasn't there. He said, you left me alone. Well, Michael really wasn't left alone. Obviously, he's got other players, but in terms of the impact that a player can make, yeah, he was left alone in, in his eyes. Um, but Dennis was making like $2.5 million a year. Dennis only made, in his career, about $28 million. And most of that was with the Bulls uh, after that first year. But he only had one year to go on his uh, contract. And we were looking, obviously, because we had lost Horace Grant, who was a key pivotal figure in free agency to the Orlando Magic. And we needed someone to come in and be able to compete with all the beast power forwards they had in the league. And, uh, you know, Jim identified uh, Dennis as that candidate. And there's something in our organization that we looked at always. And that was the risk-reward element. And people might not think $2.5 million is a big deal now, but it was actually a big deal then. Because if you look at what the salary cap was, uh, salary cap was $23 million, which Dennis Sally was uh, 11% of that. That would be a basically a $12 million deal right now in, in the today's dollars based on where the NBA cap is. But we had this player who was really expendable that we had just signed named Will Purdue. And the risk-reward on this deal was pretty straightforward. And Jerry just had to uh, be uh, appeased from the standpoint of it not disrupting the culture. And Jim did a great job, Jim Stack I'm talking about, did a great job of uh, basically talking about the structure of our team. And not only did you have Michael and Scotty, but mainly Michael who could, just by his example and his force of nature, and we'll get into this a little bit later, how he, Michael evolved as a leader, um, that's going to keep, they're going to be able to keep Dennis line, as well as the structure of the team. It was a really mature team. And obviously our coaching staff specifically led by Phil. And because of Phil's unique ways of interacting, connecting, and dealing with people, um, it made it uh, uh, something that would work. I remember in the bank vividly that um, you know, I'm going to tell you a little story um, that we brought uh, Dennis in and uh, his agent, Dwight Manley, who was a young agent at the time. And Dwight had made his money in stamp collecting business. And he, he didn't represent anybody else. But Dennis, so it was a little bit of foreign orthodox at that point. And um, Dennis was at Jerry's house and they were having dinner and Phil came over and they tell the story in there where Dennis being Dennis not really didn't have the you know the proper manners to just get up take his hat off introduce himself to Phil but Phil demanded that from that first meeting Phil is establishing how their relationship is going to be in terms of I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to try to communicate with you, but you're going to respect me as a man. I'm going to respect you as a man. And um, Dennis comes back and 
you know, because we're, we're training for dinner, so we're able to speak to him to make sure that this thing is going to work. And basically, you just had to get the approval of everybody. Jerry Reinsdorf met with him, Krauss, Phil, because Phil's going to be interacting with him on a day-to-day basis. Uh, obviously, Jerry consulted with uh, Michael, and then Scotty was brought into the fold. Um, but that night, and then the deal was going to be announced the next morning after everybody gave their approval. We had a hotel right next to our center called the Birdle Center. It was a residence inn, I believe. So Jerry's hoping that Dennis is going to be content with just staying in the hotel for the night. But no, Dennis wasn't content with that. So I was drafted to take Dennis Rodman and Jack Haley out on the town the night before we signed him, before anything's known about it. So we go to this bar called the Crowbar, and a guy named Eddie Vetter, Pearl Jam was there, playing a couple of cuts. And Dennis and Eddie became friends, or they might have already been friends. But Dennis got bored with that. Right next door was a strip joint. And so myself, Jack Haley, I think Dwight came with us, and I, we go to the strip joint. I had to take one for the club. So... <laughs> and did you, did you turn in your express report from that particular event? <laughs> Dennis took care of everything. That's the one thing about Jenner, uh, Dennis. He's a very generous man. And plus, people were waving us in when they saw Dennis Robin and everything, waving us in. I don't drink anything. I'm just going to have water when I go to a club, things of this nature. So, no, I didn't even have to worry about my expense report except to tabulate my mileage. Like, <laughs> Now, now you know you mentioned Dennis. You know Jack Haley was a live wire too, a UCLA guy, polished player. Uh, but he had that energy level that you needed to have on your ball club as well. Kind of, uh, probably a little bit more of a skilled ML car if you want to go back to cheerleaders on a ball club. So to have those two in the room, that had to be an interesting combination. Uh, to say that Jack Haley was a skilled basketball player, did you say that? Skill with skill, skill with regard to first of all UCLA guy, so he had to have some clue on how to play, but also right. a guy who understood his role on that ball club. I mean, nobody expected Jack Haley to give you a double double, but when Jack Haley came in the ball game, he gave you energy. But he was a great guy to have on your bench as well, as far as being that cheerleader, that guy. I'm sure that was a good practice player as well. Well, you know, uh, Jack was basically part of the package. Jack had actually played for the Bulls before he came with Dennis. And Jack was part of the package to be there to shepherd, I'm going to put it that way, shepherd uh, Dennis through the process once he became uh, a, a Bull. And uh, so that was Jack's main function. But no, Jack is a great practice player, going to give you a lot of energy. Mainly he was on the IR that whole year collecting the paycheck and get the championship ring. Uh, May is uh, may he rest in peace. I don't know if you know. Yeah, Jack he's he's gone. A years, yeah, um, a few years ago at a, at a very young age. At a very young age. But now that was just the, some of the dynamics be, be behind us acquiring Dennis, and recent we were able to do it, uh, and in terms of uh, the type of team that we we're able to bring him in, and uh, you know, Scotty was asked the question, uh, "How was it?" He said, oh, "It's like." Uh, it's like a glove. But it really wasn't that easy for Scotty at first. Matter of fact, I read something where 
Phil had to broker the peace between them based on what happened in their days going against each other in Detroit. And it's pretty well documented, you know, how uh, Dennis abused Scotty physically, pushed him then to the basketball standard. But uh, things eventually worked out. And when you put get Dennis on the floor, he's the kind of guy you want to play with. He did those nuts and bolts things that make the team thrive, you know, um, helping out on defense, uh, being a pest, uh, uh, rebounding the basketball on both ends of the floor, giving you a second chance opportunity, just the intangible things that uh, uh, allow a team to be greater than the sum of the parts. You know, one of the uh, things you know, that, that stood out to me with regard to Dennis Rodman is the work ethic and how he described how he prepared how to rebound and a studying players but studying spin off the ball and and knowing where the ball what vicinity it was going to be in depending on who was shooting it you know we always look at him as being a character and a hard worker but this was a guy that was well prepared when he get hit the floor something that he probably doesn't get enough credit for uh Michael gave him a lot of credit, and I think people were happy to see that. And saying he's one of the smartest basketball players he's ever played with, and he talked about it from a defensive standpoint in terms of his understanding coverages, there to plug the gap. And like you said, he studied the art of rebounding, and uh, he studied the art of rebounding not only from a general standpoint, from a specific standpoint in terms of uh, how a specific individual shot the ball and spin on the ball give himself the best opportunity to be in position to rebound. Uh, but one thing that's overlooked, and because you just couldn't bring anybody in to run the triangle offense. And I, I was reading Doug Gottlieb made a um, comment uh, on um, Twitter yesterday and, and, and talking about how great Dennis was on the rebounding defending side, but he was a very limited offensive player. And I said, well, your concept of uh, offensive basketball is very limited, if you believe that, because from Dennis' standpoint, Dennis had to be uh, – Dennis was a, a very good passer. And that's a, a tremendous part of offensive basketball uh, in terms of making the proper reads once you get the ball. And in our offensive system, you also have to be able to play – off the ball, based off where the, pa- the, the pass is, and, the, and, he, and he puts yourself in the proper position um, based on where the ball is moving so that you keep the proper spacing. And the most important aspect of, uh, of offensive basketball in terms of balance, you know, people think about defensive balance and protecting the backcourt, but you also have to design an offensive system um, that allows people to be put in position to rebound. And Dennis was great at doing that. So, yeah, uh, Dennis was a complete basketball player from the standpoint of uh, the offensive and defensive side of all in terms of the cerebral, the tactical aspect of the game. Now, technically, he didn't have certain skill sets in terms of his ability to score. No, he didn't have that. But if you look at that picture of uh, when Dennis Rodman, uh, a clip, rather, when Dennis Rodman was at Southeast Oklahoma, and I think Dennis averaged, what, 25 and 17 rebounds uh, over his three years at the NAIA school. Uh, I showed Dennis Rodman going up with a nice jump shot. So it, it became an aspect of Dennis' game. He just didn't think it was important. I want to work on it. Because he said, I got all these other people around me in Detroit, 
you know, the teammates he had with him at Detroit and with the Bulls, I don't need to score to be an effective player. I don't even need to be a threat to score. If I do these other teams, this is going to help my team win. He identified that uh, early in his uh, basketball career, how he could best help the team. And very few players would do that. And be quite blunt with you, most people, most coaches and people in the organization want a guy to still develop. Obviously, it's offensive skill set, but you know, Dennis, Dennis did it his way. And uh, 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 obviously, it worked for him. It worked for us. It worked for the Pistons. And he's a basketball Hall of Famer. He's Clarence Gaines. I'm Mike Claiborne. Thank you for listening, folks. We've got a lot more coming your way. We've got a few other issues to address regarding episodes three and four of The Last Dance this week. Stand by, folks. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're glad you're part of it here on ClaibsOnline.com. Brought to you by Ammon, Illinois, Munganast Automotive Group, and certainly Fast Eddie's Bonaire that will be coming your way soon right here on ClaibsOnline.com.